This podcast was brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. Welcome to our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Alongside Wharton Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, we tackle the latest market trends every week on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM, Channel 132. Welcome to Behind the Markets here on Business Radio. Howard by the Wharton School. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, Global CIO at WisdomTree. My co-host is Wharton Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, author of Stocks for the Long Run, and the sixth edition is out wherever books are sold, so get a copy. Uh, please note, I'm a registered representative of Foresight Fund Services. The professor is a senior advisor to WisdomTree, and our discussion is not tied to the offer or sale of any investment products. The views or guests are their own and not those of WisdomTree's affiliates. We're going to have a fascinating discussion on the macro with a, a guest, Bilal Hafiz of Macro Hive. Uh, it'll be very interesting to get his take on what's going on. I had a preview of that uh, a few weeks ago over in London. Um, but today, Professor, we're going to kick it off with you. Of course, get your take on on the re- employment report, you've got some green. The markets are cheering here a little bit. How, how are you responding to the data? All right. Well, we had two really been big uh, developments this week and reports. Obviously, the Fed meeting uh, and this jobs data that uh, that came in this morning. Um, let, let me comment on, on the jobs data. I mean, uh, certainly it beat expectations. Um there uh, by about 70,000. And one should note that there were 75,000 negative revisions for the month of March and another 75 negative revision for the month of February, which made the actual three-month job growth much lower than expected um, and first quarter job growth lower than expected. That might help uh, the, the absolutely dismal productivity figures that did come in earlier this week for first quarter, you know, greater than a 2% drop. We've been commenting how terrible productivity has been growth. uh, Growth has been over the last three years since the one quarter surge after the pandemic uh, among the lowest in history that might be revised up a few tenths, but it is still very, it's still very, very low. Um, uh, the unemployment rate, uh, you know, sinking to a three, four is notable again, tying that low. Uh, let me give you a, 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 and wages coming in a tad higher than expected. So let, let me, let me give you my, uh, bottom line take. Um, I think that the chairman, Jay Powell, um, in his comments, the bar is very high for raising in June. Um, I think you would need much more than this. Uh, we're going to get another employment report before the June meeting, um, which would, again, have to be much stronger than expected, um, maybe even driving the unemployment rate below 3.4% and somewhere in that uh, 250 to 300 uh, we're getting the inflation report next week, which would have to be, I think, much hotter than expected. And uh, interestingly enough, the, um, uh, the the May inflation report comes out on uh, the first day of the Fed meeting and certainly will also influence uh, their decision. So there's a lot more data, and that has to come in hot, in my opinion. So I, I think for them to raise in June – um, we would have to get three really hot data points. I think they're really set to pause for at least one meeting. Uh, the bar is also high for them reducing it. Um, but I do think that's going to happen later this year. And what it will take, in my opinion, is a zero or, or more specifically a negative payroll number. Um, negative payroll for the month. Um, I think that that will open eyes uh, and will also hit the headlines. And we are getting into political season where the pressure on the Fed not to be overly tight will take hold if we get a negative payroll and and some sort of jump in the unemployment rate. I'm not saying that's going to happen uh, with the May meeting, uh, May data that will come in before their next meeting. We may have to, you know, wait on that. But I would say it's not unlikely to come in 
in the next uh, around uh, the next m- months of the summer. Um, we definitely see that the disturbances, the initial disturbances on SVB and on Signature, um, did not have an effect in April. Um, that 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 is true. We don't really know whether the problems of First National and the other problems of PacWest and others, which I regard as more substantive, uh, are going to have an effect in May or June. Um, uh, he did. Everyone said it is equivalent to some degrees of tightening. Um, everyone now says we don't have to tighten as a result of this. They just don't know how many tightenings that is. Uh, we will see. I think it. The real rate and the tightening will, will depress uh, capital spending. It already has depressed capital spending a lot. Uh, investment spending is down. Housing looks like it's stabilized at a low level, although with the rise in rates, um, it's not going to rate. It's not going to lower rates that much more. In fact, rates are headed up. So that may remain very, very soft. The consumer, when will he or she burn out? Um, I mean, that's the only thing really carrying this economy. Um, uh, it appears soon, if you take a look at their savings and liquidity and money, um, uh, when they have to start borrowing from uh, even a home equity loan, which is pegged to these short-term rates uh, or credit cards or anything else, um, you know, they will uh, feel that pinch. Um, so, again, the, the bar is high. I, I think we are on pause. And we're waiting to see, and what the market is waiting to see is basically whether uh, the um, uh, the recent disturbances in banking are going to have a uh, substantial effect uh, in the month uh, of April. Uh, again, the earnings reports are coming in fairly good. Remember, that's history. I mean, earnings reports are January, February, March, almost all of it way before even the SVB crisis. Um, we're getting uh, outlooks that are mixed. Uh, some are pointing to slowdowns. Um, others are uh, actually some are raising guidance. Certainly, uh, first quarter earnings were not bad. They were nothing nearly as bad as fourth quarter earnings were uh, in 2022. And I think that's encouraged the market. Now, why is the market going up today? I think the market is going up today basically because, wow, that recession has been put off. <laughs> is it starting? Now, we do see an upward creep of the jobless claims. Um, um, and last Thursday, that will be an early indicator uh, that we might get trouble in the payroll if we do. Uh, again, how you know it's it's uh, uh, certainly it, it has surprised me how strong it has stayed so long, uh, given the real rates and the tightening of credit. Um, but I do expect it to take a toll uh, later this year. Now, I got a chance to be on a panel with Bilal a few weeks ago, and I know I, I almost fell off my chair when I heard what Bilal was thought rates were going to go to. I, I give him maybe 30 seconds to give his high-level take, and Professor, maybe we could have just two minutes of interaction before you have to jump. Um, Bilal, give us, give us your macro take, what you see on the Fed, inflation. How hawkish do you think the Fed needs to get here on what's going on? Yeah, my, the, so the punchline is I think the U.S. still has a, a significant inflation problem. Um, the inflation problem is persistent. And I think that people are uh, mistakenly assuming that we're going to get back to the inflation regime of before COVID. I think something has changed in the economy. Um, everybody is now starting to shift their behavior around demanding higher wages. Companies are more happier to pass on higher prices. The labor market is very tight. So I think inflation will end up being much higher than everyone expects. And as a result, eventually the Fed will end up raising rates to 7-8%. Um, in terms of the timing of that, I think that the Fed will likely hike rates in June. So next meeting, I think there's a good chance they do hike. But then they go on hold. They'll, go, they'll pause for three, four months just to see how things are going, see if this banking crisis stabilizes or not. And then they'll resume hiking um, um, as, uh, as they uh, realize that inflation is higher than they expect. Um, the one thing I'm not so sure about, which is a big risk here, is if this regional bank crisis spirals out of control. So PacWest, if this 
ends up being much, much bigger and we have a larger financial crisis, then that's a scenario where I could see the Fed easing. But um, my base case is that we aren't in the midst of this financial crisis. And uh, as a result, I think inflation is the the, the key thing here. And that's going to be higher, last longer than people think. And that will force the Fed after a pause to end up hiking more than everyone thinks. Uh Again, I I, I I I differ on that. Um, I by the way, one thing that was surprising in Powell, and I listened very closely to his remark, almost unprodded, he did make the statement. Oh, and I don't believe that wages cause inflation. He's been um, listening which, which to you. <laughs> puzzled me no end since he's been talking about wages and that in, inflation for. Uh, for quite a long time. He didn't explain that. Now, if, if, is he saying wages don't cause inflation, but they indicate inflation? Well, no one says they really indicate inflation. They're lagging indicators, if anything. So that puzzling statement that came out, and by the way, I, I agree with him. I don't think the, the, the wages are really a major cause of this inflation. Uh, no one really picked up on him and said, are, are you sure why you've been talking about it so much? Now, wages are catching up. Uh, and they have to catch up. And service sector inflation, uh, I think, uh, is, is going to be somewhat persistent. However, when we look at sensitive commodities, um, all the commodity, and look at what happened to oil. I mean, it fell below 70. It's above it today because we've got good economic news. It has a, a very high beta. And, uh, you know, with anything better economic news, it will jump up. But if you take a look at all the commodity indices, they're not going up. If you take a look at all the sensitive cargo and everything else that soared in 2021 when when he was so wrong about inflation and I was screaming about inflation is not going up. Um, and, uh, you know, his statement about wages, which are in catch up mode and have fallen way behind inflation over the three years since the pandemic began, um, he's going to get, you know, if he's only looking at that, that service inflation, um, uh, he's going to get some political heat, and I don't think that that is necessarily going to carry the day. I don't see what reignites the inflation, because there is no question that the labor market, although still tight, is cooling from every single measure. The jolts measure even, I mean, as I said, actually payroll growth of the last three months came in below expectations, although this month came in above expectations. Uh, unemployment claims are on an upward trend. I mean, we could go on and on. Now, ECI is certainly remaining above trend, uh, above 2%. Uh, it's your estimate of what productivity growth is going to be, actually, we, we we should have wages 2% above inflation if we do a long-term historical average uh, in, in any case. So um, we'll, we'll see what happens. But uh, I look at these sensitive indicators if we get inflation reigniting. And if we do, certainly there would be a cause for doing it. But I see nothing there, nothing there that suggests that uh, reigniting of, of the, the sensitive commodity indicators that almost invariably have given you advanced warning of an inflationary push. So we'll all, we'll, we'll continue on for the hour. But if you had a few quick points to to respond, what what if you said the the thing that that we're missing here? What where would you say the inflation is coming from? I, I would say the the big uh, source of difference. I would say is that I think what COVID did was it imposed a big shock to the goods sector. Um, so there's a huge sectoral difference. What happened was that you have uh, this massive boost in goods during the COVID period, uh, which is unwinding now. So basically manufacturing goods, all of them are seeing disinflationary pressures right now. So I agree with that, that goods prices are in disinflation mode. We're seeing prices fall. But services, which got crushed during COVID, are, is where you're seeing the inflation and I think that's the thing. The mistake is to think that the signal you're getting from commodities and goods tells you something about services. So I disagree that, that there's a connection between the two. Historically, there has been. Uh, but COVID, uh, the nature of COVID was such that it imparted a sexual shock in a way that we haven't seen in previous cycles in the last 20, 30 years, at least. So I think it's a, a false signal to look at what's happening in manufacturing goods. Instead, you need to look at services. And that's where you're seeing persistent inflation. Moreover, I would also add that inflation, core inflation today is five and a half percent. I mean, how can the Fed pause when you have inflation at five and a half percent? 
it's never done that before. Um, well, yeah. let me comment. Let me comment on this. First of all, we've talked about the fact that we all know how faulty the housing uh, data is. So that five and a half percent year over year is much lower if you use current housing data. But let me uh, say something on on this question of of uh, of labor. I agree with you. In fact, Powell admitted in November there was a structural shift in labor supply that was caused by COVID. The problem is that monetary policy is not supposed to handle a structural shift. If there's a lowering of the labor supply, you don't necessarily crush demand to get that down. Real wages must rise if there is a structural shift. There's no other way to bring equilibrium back to the labor market unless you crush all other prices down and the only way i think you're going to do that is cause a recession and that doesn't help anyone so it seems to me if there is a structural shift then you got to let those real wages rise um they have to rise either absolutely or they have to push down all the other prices to get those real wages to rise. It's the only way to bring equilibrium back in that market. So with that, I do have to leave, but um, maybe we'll pick up this discussion sometimes later. Thank you, Professor, for joining. Have a great uh, great weekend here. Thank you. So, so I'm going to continue on. Uh, we have uh, Bilal Hafiz of MacroHive. Um, and we got a great preview of what we're going to be talking about here. But I'll tell our listeners uh, a little bit uh, about your firm, about yourself, and and the approach that you guys bring to to the markets. Great. No, thanks a lot, Jeremy. And it was great speaking to the professor earlier. Yeah, so in terms of my background, um, I started off at JP Morgan in 1997 uh, doing uh, economic and foreign exchange and currency research, um, looking in particular at emerging market crises as well. If you recall, in 97, 98, we had the Asian crisis and the Russia crisis. Then I moved to Deutsche Bank in 2002, and I was there for 13 years, where I ran various different research groups, uh, Asia research, cross-market research. So I've been a sell-side analyst for a long, long time. Then I was at Nomura for a few years, and then I set up Macrohive in 2019. So we're an independent research company, and we basically produce research for some of the top investors in the world, some of the biggest hedge funds, asset managers. Um, and what we do is we have a very strong research team of around 10 to 12 people. People have worked at the Fed before. People have worked um uh, you know, for uh, large investment banks before. And what we do is we provide views to help their investments. So we give views on the Fed, we give views on whether they should buy or sell bonds, buy or sell equities, views on the dollar. We've been doing that for about three or four years now. And, um, and that's essentially what we do at MacroHive. And you also have a MacroHive podcast. So people listening here on Behind the Markets can can also find you on, on there as well. Um, and so... I think, you know, it's fascinating on, on, I, I think you are, uh, I, I, if I, I think we had like the, the perfect two extremes here. I think Siegel is on the extreme of the Fed needs to cut as quickly as possible. And, and I think you're probably the, the most hawkish of people I hear. I, mean, I, I hear a lot of higher for longer, but I don't hear a lot of getting to 7%. I mean, that is a, a big number <laughs> yeah. still. Um, and so I, I, I love that, that contrast and I was excited to get you on. Um, is in, in your view on the, what could, you know, I, I've been worried on what we call, you know, the bank walk, that there are people moving from banks because of these high rates, you know, that they're moving to treasuries they're moving to money market funds because, Hey, the banks are still not paying them anything, which is really, you know, hurting. I mean, the banks are hurting themselves in some ways that they, they should have been offering competitive deposit rates with treasuries. But is, is that, is do you think that they that they will start offering higher rates to stem the walk, or you know, not concerned about that that type of issue? No, this is this is certainly a big worry that I have and our team has, and this is something we're monitoring very closely. And if this does worsen, then I think we'd have to change our Fed view. But our my assumption is that at least for now, from what we can tell, this will be a slow moving bank walk or crisis, you could say, where regional banks will be forced to raise their interest rates on their deposits, which will reduce their profitability, and they'll have to shrink their balance sheets uh, to try to retain their profitability. Um, and that could, could cause some distress, could cause some banks to go down further. So I think we will see almost every month 
uh, smaller banks starting to fail. Now, this is not necessarily unusual. Um, of, of course, we had the global financial crisis in 2008, where you saw lots of banks fail. But back in the 80s, when the Fed was hiking back then, you had six, seven years of banks failing every month after month after month uh, in, during the so-called savings and loan crisis. So, so I think we're probably in a somewhat similar environment as the late 80s, where there's a profitability uh, problem for these banks. There are some balance sheet issues as well. The main issue is that many of these banks have exposures to the commercial real estate sector, which could be problematic. But the other side is that they hold lots of treasuries. So unlike the global financial crisis, where banks didn't hold much, you know, highly rated treasuries, instead they held toxic mortgage assets. Um, in the end, they do hold an asset, which is treasuries, which is very credit worthy. So that makes me a little less worried that we're going to have a GFC type type event. So I think there is a problem. It's going to be more of a slow, drawn out affair. Um, but it is certainly something that we need to watch. Uh, you know, we, we focus a lot on the U.S. here, but with you in London, I, I should also ask, you know, we had the ECB meeting uh, this week as well. Um, and do you have a and, – and actually, I was at a conference with Sheila Baer, who was the former head of the FDIC, who made a comment quite interestingly that that European banks are in better shape than U.S. banks to her embarrassment. That was the comment the former head of the FDIC <laughs> made. Um any comments on both, you know, Europe and and uh, if the ECB is going to continue along their path and what we, what we think about that kind of view on the banks in Europe? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So the ECB did raise interest rates this week. They raised it by 0.25%. Uh, I think they will continue to hike. So I think they'll hike. Um, they'll raise rates um, at the next meeting and the meeting after that. So they'll raise rates by further 0.5%. Core inflation in Europe is, is almost at 6%. So their inflation rate is actually higher than the US, uh, at least in core inflation terms. So they, they have more of an inflation problem at the moment. So I think they're going to continue to hike. Um, and so I think there's more to come from them. Then they'll probably pause to just like the Fed has or is, is going to, to kind of see the effects of it all. And Sheila Blair, she's right. For once, European banks are in a better position than the US. The main reason for that is that uh, number one, uh, European uh, bank uh, deposits um, tend to be stickier. So what that means is that um, in Europe, you don't have the same dynamic as you have in the US, where you have very accessible money market funds, where it's very easy to switch from your low interest rate deposit to money market funds. Europe doesn't really have that setup. On top of that, uh, most the average uh, amount of money people have in deposits is covered by uh, the deposit insurance schemes within Europe uh, to a larger degree than the US. In the US, what you tend to have is you tend to have larger balances held at individual banks, which are not fully covered by insurance. Um, and then on top of that, the other uh, you know difference with Europe is that Europe didn't see this surge of bank deposits uh, um, that U.S. banks saw immediately after COVID. So what happened in the U.S. was after COVID, with all this money thrown into the economy, banks suddenly got a huge amount of cash deposits uh, in the U.S. into the banks. And then they basically didn't know what to do with that, that, those deposits. So they ended up buying treasuries at very unattractive yields. And then over the past year, when bond yields went up, they lost money on on those on, on those holdings. Um, Europe, you didn't have that similar dynamic, so you don't have the, the the similar asset liability mismatch on the bank side. So so yeah, European banks are in a, for once in in a better position than than the U.S. counterparts. And so it, it's kind of like this gre little gre the standard greed scenario where they could have kept it in treasuries and earned a little bit less now, like short term treasury, like very you know. Yep. one week duration or three months and and kept rolling it along and but instead they were trying to get extra 100 basis points maybe a little bit less and and go out the curve and now they're having this duration problem because these investments are with worth way less um, so very interesting dynamic that you're that part of the u.s stimulus caused the the problem for the banks um in the longer run it not it, very interesting dynamic um how do you so in in terms of with the the view on rates and 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 how this all makes asset allocation as how do you think about the opportunities today in equities compared to you know bonds things like that the big very big picture view are markets not digesting 
um, what you think needs to happen? Yeah, I mean, I think we're we're at very challenging juncture in markets right now. So from an asset allocation perspective, my bias is to be very defensive because the issue is, on the one hand, in some ways, it can be distilled down to you have an inflation problem. So I, I still believe we have an inflation problem, unlike the professor. But on the other hand, you have banking risk crisis risks as well. So you have both of them at the same time, which are kind of you know, yeah. acting against each other in some ways. So that makes it quite difficult to have um, uh, a very clear or, or definitive asset allocation view, but it does make you more defensive. I think the upshot of this is that if you have both an inflation, a potential inflation problem, which would mean that uh, the Fed will end up having to raise by more, or if you have a bank crisis, which gets worse, uh, then that should uh, also be something that is bad for risk assets. So, so my bias is that in the end, whichever path you take will be bad for, say, equities. We're in this stage right now where the market is essentially saying that um, because there is this bank crisis, that will stop, uh, that will basically deal with the inflation issue, and it, but it won't be bad enough to lead to a recession. So it's kind of like this Goldilocks interplay between the Fed, inflation, and the banks. But I think if you look at history, it's never that straightforward. I mean, something's got to give. Um, so my overall bias is to be very defensive on equities. So um, overall, to be underweight equities or to be long defensive equity stocks, um, sh- certainly short growth stocks. Um, and then on the bond side, my bias would be to kind of probably have a bias to be long duration, um, sort of, you know, to so 10 years, so basically, or five years, say. Uh, so, so lean a bit more that way, but probably overweight the most in cash, I would say, you know, because in this type of environment, there's a high chance of capital loss somewhere in your portfolio. So, you know, being a bit more cautious and being in cash, I think does make a lot of sense. Cash with treasury bills yielding 5%, you know, if that is the, if yeah, that is what the, beat. it's hard to beat. Um, in terms of the, it's interesting. I mean, you mentioned the defensives and avoiding tech. You know, tech has been the leader this year on this sort of duration play in some ways, um, where they're viewed as this defensive play. Is is um, they're not so defensive in your view? It, it the uh, the tech stocks are. You're worried about valuations. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think on the tech stocks. I mean, I'd make a distinction. I mean, there's the big tech. You know, the Microsoft, the Apples, which are defensive. You know, they have good balance sheets. Uh, you know, they're, they're, you know, they're sort of solid companies. Um, so I think you could argue that they're, they're a bit more defensive. Um, so I wouldn't necessarily be bearish on them. I'd probably be more neutral. But then the rest of tech, you know, which have much poorer balance sheets, the ones that were fueled by all this VC money, those are the ones that I think I'd be really cautious towards. The one thing I would say about uh, big tech is that, you know, I think the two factors have really helped them over the last three to six months. One is that interest rates have fallen. The 10-year U.S. interest have fallen, which has really helped uh, tech stocks. Um, but the other is the AI boom that we're seeing. Um, so obviously, everyone's familiar, probably has heard about ChatGPT and all of these large language models. And so there's this big focus on uh, artificial intelligence investments. And uh, the view is that big tech will benefit a lot from the AI boom. Um, you know, Microsoft has, has bought a large stake in OpenAI. You know, Google has a play in that space. Um, you know, so there's a lot of investment in AI. And so I think part of the story also is an AI play as well. Um, now, the the challenge with that type of story is if it's if it's uh, these big kind of fads or themes, then that could could fade as well going forward. I, I, I as it happens, I do think this AI story is real. It is a, you know, a disruptive disruptive technology. Um, but um, these things end up taking a lot longer to monetize than people typically, uh, you know, hope for. We're all playing around trying to figure out how we could all use it on a, on a daily basis. It is amazing how much it's now caught everyone's discussion points of like what they're doing yeah. with it and playing around with it. So it, it's fascinating. I mean, in our company at MacroHive, you know, we've everyone, every single function, whether they're researchers, marketing, sales, everybody's playing around with ChatGPT to find ways of uh, making their life easier. And, and there are ways uh, I found in every area, it can make your life a lot easier. But at the same time, I haven't found it strong enough to replace 
anyone's jobs, so to speak. You know, so a lot of people are saying it's the end of you know right. people's work and stuff, but. I haven't seen anything where it's obvious that you could actually replace somebody or not hire somebody and use ChatGPT instead. It's just another productivity enhancer, yet we don't see it in the productivity data, as the professor <laughs> likes Classic, to spin, yeah. been to say. Is that why is the productivity so disappointing? Uh, do you have a, Do you have any view on that 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 point? Yeah, I mean it's it's a great question, and I think that um, you know this has been a sort of a puzzle for a long, long time. I mean, I think. Part of it could be this measurement issue. People have talked about that. Um, so for some reason, perhaps, as we move into more of a digital economy, uh, the, the measurement bias of productivity gets worse and worse and worse because we can't capture these, um, the, sort of the uh, improvements uh, that we've seen before. But the other thing I would say is that if you look at any economy, especially the US economy, it has tended to become a bit more monopolistic over time. So there's more... Uh, you know, large companies dominating every sector. And I think that tends to sort of drive down productivity. Um, so there, so I think there is something to do with kind of efficiency and competition that I think is impacting uh, productivity. Um, so, yeah, so that, that's what I'd say. I mean, I don't have a, uh, you know, uh, um, a single answer for this, yeah. but I think there's certain sort of structural features, you know, the rise of digital, I think the lack of uh, competition or more, more monopolistic behavior, which I think is suppressing productivity. You mentioned your, all of your teams are starting to play around with it. What are the are robots going to be running your macro research, or is it going to be running uh, where to allocate across assets? How are robots going to help us uh, figure things out here? Yeah, we'll see if robots take over. But certainly, we're finding we've done a, we have a computer science team in you know within MacroHive, and so we've been looking at all sorts of AI. And what we have found is there's probably two areas that we think are helpful. Um, as tools for investors, and we're building these tools ourselves. Um, so that's and so we're kind of learning which ones work best. One is that um, these ChatGPT models, what they, what you can use them for is if you use the language capabilities of these models and apply it to a, tr- a more trusted data source. So we we use the language skills of the ChatGPT, but then say to it that only look at the research of, say, MacroHive or the Fed or sources that you really, really trust, and then extract knowledge out of those sources, that's very powerful because uh, ChatGPT in its current form uses the whole internet as its source of information, and you don't know what sorts of crazy things people have written on the internet, whether it's true or not. So if you basically are able to, say, only look at trusted sources, then suddenly you get this extra superpower to be able to respond to events much more quickly. So, for example, if something happens around U.S. politics or the debt ceiling, you can quickly ask your, you know, your model, which uses your trusted source, what happened last time, there's a debt ceiling issue, will come out with an answer very quickly, and then you can use that as a, as a support for you when you're trading. So that's one area that's very, very uh, useful. Um, another one is that what we found is that you can use AI models to using lots of big data. So looking at uh, volatility data, interest rate data, commodity price data, like thousands and thousands of data sources and put it into these AI models. And what it does is it can tell you what type of, whether the, the market environment is good for your style of trading. So we're building these models and it works quite well. So if you're a very trend following type of trader, it will tell you actually this environment for the next week or two is not so good for trend following. So you should probably hang back a bit. So so what we're finding is these AI tools are really useful as a support for human uh, investors. So we're not quite at the robot stage. We're kind of more at the human plus robot stage. So in that sense, uh, we, we should be happy we can keep our jobs. But certainly, it gives you this extra tool that you can use um, in your investing. Yeah, I, I, the, Gary Kasparov's book made that point very commonly that you know the, if you put just the machine or you put human plus machine, much better than the machine by itself even. And I, I think that'll be quite interesting to see if if you if that is how it all plays out that you can use these things to get better and smarter do you in 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 some of these models is it clear what the machines are doing or is it sort of still untransparent uh that they, they're finding insights that you would never have seen you know can you, can you explain their insights in in some ways yeah no that's 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 a very uh, good observation and that's one of the challenges with some of these ai well many of these ai models they're black boxes so what we do is we do an extra step 
which is that we we use some techniques to make the black box trans like a, a white box. So we try to sort of say, okay, why did it move the way it did? And then we ask our human experts to interpret that. And if our human experts say, look, some of that doesn't make any sense, then we kind of shift the model around so that it's more explainable. So even at that stage, what we're saying is we're not fully trusting the black box. We want some kind of human oversight to say that, look, that type of uh, you know, arrangement of the model or that interpretation of the data is just so wacky that we can't take that seriously. So there is actually another human step uh, because for us, the explainability is very important, that we don't want to entirely rely on a black box where we have no idea why it switched its uh, signal, you know, today versus before. Yeah. Well, you know, I think one of the big overarching competitive forces is, uh, in, in AI in particular, I, I was actually in D.C. this week, and I, I spent time meeting with people in policy circles. And I think there's going to be, the, the sensitivity on AI and China versus the U.S. is is high on the radar. And we're, we're likely to see, uh, even maybe ahead of the G7 meetings coming up later in May, they're trying to announce all sorts of different policies. Uh, AI is at the center point of some of these conversations. But ha- what's your view on the U.S. and China? Uh, and what's your view on China? Like, what? How, how are you looking at that from a macro perspective? Yeah, so first about US and China, you know, I think one way of characterizing what we're seeing in terms of the conflict and the tension between US and China is AI. So if you think back to the the US-Soviet Union Cold War, the underlying technology that there was at the heart of it was nuclear weapons. You know, both sides were, you know, using or trying to stop each other from getting nuclear weapons. But this time, I think the tension between US and China is AI. There's a war about controlling AI. Um, going forward, because AI is such a disruptive force, it kind of really enhances or can destabilize economies. Um, And so I think there is a conflict between the two. And the two main areas of contention are who controls the hardware, because you need a lot of um, computer chip, GPU technology to run these AI models. So the US is trying to ensure that the US and the Western uh, countries uh, control the supply chain of these GPU and uh, chip technology, the high-end chips that are needed to run these AI models. Meanwhile, China is trying to build its own AI chips. Um, it doesn't have the advanced technology yet to do that. It takes a long time. So they're trying to become uh, not reliant on the US in any way whatsoever or reliant on any US allies in order to build its own chips for AI. At the moment, it's not ready to do that yet. So it still needs to get uh, those chips from elsewhere. So that's one area of contention. And, you know, there's a conflict between the two in terms of securing control of, of those chips. And then the other is data, you know, because all these models work by, you know, using huge amounts of data. And I think this is not just a issue between US and China, this is also an issue of copyright as well, that everybody's going to be saying, look, you can't use my data uh, in your models. Um, so the China will say, look, we don't want any Chinese data to be used by Western or US uh, AI models. Um, uh, the US will be saying, you know, China shouldn't be able to use any US data. So there's a conflict on the data side as well. So I think this is the big source. This is kind of the underlying tension between US and China. I think you can see it through an AI filter. Um, so that's what the thing I'd say on the on 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 sort of the geopolitics of U.S. and China. Then on the China economy, I you know the macro picture I think is a case of a steady recovery in China. You know China was in lockdown for the last year or two. The economy is bouncing back. Um, some parts stronger than the other, but we are certainly are seeing the service side of the economy is bouncing back very strongly, more so than manufacturing, which is what you would expect once you reopen an economy, people go out shopping, they go to restaurants and so on. Um, There is a problem, I think, in China of overcapacity in the manufacturing sector. So paradoxically, um, unlike the Western economies, which gave a lot of money to households to buy stuff, what the Chinese did during the, the, the COVID period was to give lots of money to companies to manufacture more to be able to supply the rest of the world. And so there's a lot of excess manufacturing capacity in China, which is one of the reasons why China has very low inflation rates. Uh, CPI is less than 2% in China. 
So you have this kind of, uh, you know, abundant manufacturing supply sort of story, but then the consumer demand is picking up as people have, you know, left their houses. Um, uh, so that on balance, there's still net positive growth. And I think people are underestimating the strength of that growth. And I think that growth will probably pick up pace in the second half of this year as the Chinese start to stimulate the economy a lot more as well. Um, I think the, there's been a change in policymakers over the last three, four months. As they settle down, they'll stimulate the economy a lot more in the second half of this year, which will kind of boost the economy a bit more and it'll get it back towards trend growth. Now, the, the Europeans might you know have a different perspective than the U.S. I, I don't know what how, how you think the institutional investors' attitude towards China investments are. Do, do you feel... U.S. people versus Europeans do bring a different, you know, how much China they want in portfolios. Is it a different lens in in Europe than the U.S.? Yeah, I would I would definitely say there's a difference. I would say the U.S. is much more of an anti-China bias amongst portfolio managers and even corporates as well. Whether corporates admit it or not, there is a a policy to try to diversify away from China. U.S. portfolio managers are also hesitant to have too much China exposure. Europe, on the other hand, has a much more balanced approach to China. They don't necessarily want to disinvest from China. If you look at European corporates, in fact, if anything, Europe has been big investors into China in terms of production facilities. So lots of German companies have shifted their production facilities to China over the last year. On the investor side, European investors still are, uh, you know, still are, have a favorable view towards China. So Europe does actually have quite a different view from the U.S. Uh, around China. You can also see that by uh, European politicians, you know, going to visit China with business people um, and, and often making remarks that, you know, the U.S. hasn't liked. So Europe, as usual, is trying to balance East and the West because Europe's stuck in the middle. Um, and so they do take much more of uh, um, a neutral uh, take on, on China compared to, the, uh, to, compared to the U.S. Yeah, it was interesting. I, I, at that same event that Sheila Bear spoke, Marco Papich, who's one of the, uh, the, the, the geopolitical strategists from Clock Tower, is talked about a bullish view on EM, but particularly for those countries that are not aligned with either one who could play each China and the U.S. off each other. I thought yeah. that was sort of a pretty interesting observation. Now, in terms of if if you think the China reopening is coming back, what are some of the top ways to express that in views? If you say, hey, the, the, the China reopening is underappreciated, what's, what's the top ideas? Is it commodities? Is it equities, emerging markets generally? What's your favorite? Yeah, I would say there's, there's, there's three trades or three markets that will do particularly well on China reopening. Number one, it'll be Chinese stocks, which I think in general have actually done quite well so far this year. Um, you know, there, there was a bit of a correction a month or so ago, but it's bounced back. So Chinese equities, number one, because that captures uh, uh, somewhat of the domestic recovery story. Um, I think number two, I think Latin America does very well because uh, Latin American currencies like Brazil, um, Colombia and so on, because they have links, economic links to China. As China recovers, they get that bounce. Also, those countries also have very high interest rates as well. So you kind of get some China exposure, but also you get high interest rates as well, um, which which are very attractive. And then I think commodities as well. I mean, commodities have struggled a bit this year, but I think certainly for the second half of this year, I think commodities, things like copper prices and also even oil. Oil's taken a bit of a tumble over the past week. But I do think that as we come into the summer and beyond, I think oil will also start to recover. So I think both copper and oil, I think, will be good commodity plays. The other side point I would make on China is that China, if you look within investment numbers within China, there's a massive investment spend on green products and green energy. Um, on, on green everything. Uh, so whether it's uh, batteries, electric cars, um, solar, wind, everything. They're, they're, they're basically, you know, uh, dominating the world in anything green related. So they're exporting more EV cars now than any other country in the world. Um, and so I think that's also a, a big play that you have with China, because that also is a story for the world as well. So any kind of green plays, whether that's, uh, you know, green related stocks or whether that's uh, lithium, uh, cobalt, you know, the things, the commodities that are linked to the electrification 
uh, theme uh, as well. So I think that's also one interesting story that you have in China. So there's, yeah, there's that secular shift towards EV, and, and you hear that in copper a lot. And then you have sort of copper. This is the cyclicals. What's is what in, in your sense of what's happening in oil? What, what, what's your being that a, a very critical commodity for both inflation and all these other things? What, what's your sense on what's happening in oil? Uh, and and is it is it mostly a China story for the second half of the year, or do you think there's other things that have you well that. Uh, a view on oil. Yeah, no, 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 there's, there's, it's more than just China. I mean, China's a big part of it. China's one of the biggest consumers of oil in the world. So I think that China's a big uh, factor. The other factor I think also is there was a big inventory build of oil uh, last year. So lots of, um, you know, lots of uh, countries are building up big stocks of oil, which they've been using. They haven't need to buy oil in the open market. And so that inventory is starting to come down. So as we go into the summer months, there'll be much less inventory that oil importers can uh, resort to. So instead, they'll actually have to buy oil in the open market. So I think that's another factor, like less inventory, which should be bullish for oil. And the other one, I think, is uh, production or supply issues that I think the Middle East is uh, more sensitive about falling oil prices. So I think they're more likely to cut oil production to to form a a base uh, in, in oil prices. Also, Russia uh, continues to supply oil to the world, uh, you know, via, you know, non-Western countries. And so there's a lot of oil supply from Russia. But the summer months, we'll see uh, the Russian, lots of uh, Russian oil facilities enter maintenance period. They do this every summer. So suddenly you'll see a drop off in Russian oil supply uh, to the rest of the world. So I think there's certain supply cut dynamics that are coming in into play as well. So so there's a China demand story, and then there's a less inventory story, and there's potentially some uh, supply cut story. I think all of that will start to come together in the next uh, month or two for oil. Quite interesting. Uh, and we can't really have a macro conversation if we don't talk currencies at all. Uh, and so the dollar has been one of the big stories. It ties into some of these commodity stories, I think. But I'm curious on your take on uh, – you could talk about other currencies but the dollar. But is, is, if you as you look around the currency lineup, any big views on, on what's been happening recently, where you, where you think these things are going? Absolutely. From a, from a very sort of big picture perspective, my view is that the dollar follows long-term cycles. So the dollar tends to go up seven, eight, nine years, and then it's up to four for seven, eight, nine years. And the dollar since around 2011 was going up, you know, almost relentlessly year after year after year. And it kind of reached a high last year, you could say. So since around late last year, the dollar has started to fall against most currencies. And I think on a multi-year perspective, I do think the dollar is in for a decline against most currencies, whether that's the euro, the yen, uh, Latin American currencies, Mexico, which, whichever ones. Um, however, from a short-term perspective, as in for the next two, three months, so from the time horizon of an investor, I would say that uh, the dollar will probably do well against the euro. Um, I think that the euro, uh, the dollar's weakened against the euro over the last few months, which is partly to do with the, euro, the U.S. banking issues, uh, the worries about the U.S. debt ceiling, and also the focus on the U.S. ending its Fed hiking cycle. But I think going forward, a lot of that bad news has been priced into the dollar. And I think instead, the market will start to focus on some of the problems for Europe. So, you know, the ECB could be coming to the end of its hiking cycle. There could be some risk to European growth. The numbers have been very strong. There's risk they could come out lower. So I think the euro could start to fall a bit from here. So I'd be a bit bullish against the dollar against the euro. But I think broader emerging markets will do well against the dollar because I think that uh, that's a story about many emerging market countries have higher interest rates than the U.S. They'll benefit from this bounce in commodities. They'll benefit from a, a turnaround in China as well. So I think it will be uh, kind of a mixed story on the dollar for the next few months. But longer term, on a multi-year basis, I'm, I'm, I'm bearish on the dollar. And is that mostly from the valuations and then the Fed eventually cutting rates or is there a, or something else going on there? Yeah, yeah, that's a good question. I mean, it's partly valuations. Um, it's also uh, partly to do with U.S. current account dynamics. The U.S. is still running quite a large current account deficit. And typically, this size of deficit usually requires some kind of uh, currency adjustment. Um, I also think that the level of U.S. interest rates is not high enough, uh, given the inflation rate. So real interest rates are too uh, too low uh, given the size of the current account deficit. So I think that will be a challenge for the U.S. going forward. 
uh, on a medium term basis. So, so maybe as as we as we're wrapping in to find a few minutes, um, all those views on the on the currencies that f- factors in to gold, I presume, in some ways. Any any sense of gold has been bumping up against these high levels? Is it going to break out towards new ground, or is it going to hit resistance here and and fall back down? Yeah, no, that's a, that's a great question. I mean, I think on gold. Um, I'll probably be neutral right now. I was very bullish at the start of this year, you know, because I thought that, um, you know, the interest rates were, you know, starting to fall finally. That helps gold and the dollar was struggling a bit. But I think from here onwards, I think the picture is a bit more difficult for gold because I think that there's a lot of interest rate cuts priced for the Fed. And I think there's a risk some of that could be taken back, which could hurt gold. I also think that if, the dollar does a bit better against the euro, then that will hurt gold as well. I also think lots of investors have, have already bought a lot of gold already. So I think there's a there, there's kind of not many new buyers left in the market. So so I'd probably be in neutral on gold uh, right now. And as, as we're sort of in our final final comments, any closing thoughts or things people you want to point people, where to find you at MacroHive, the types of people who should be reaching out for your services? Yeah, so I mean, if if you're serious about markets and and you want a very kind of informed perspective on markets, just come to our website, macrohive.com. We have a free newsletter. Just type in your email and you'll you'll receive our free newsletter, and then you can get details of our sort of views through that. And then we have some additional services if you're interested. You could uh, you could get access to that as well. But it's a, it's a free uh, weekly newsletter you can get access to. We talk about you know, uh, oil, gold, equities, crypto, everything. And it's, uh, it's, uh, it's a quite a sort of fun read and very experienced team as well. So macrohive.com. Now, this was uh, a ton of a ton of fun. And again, he has uh, Bilal also runs his own podcast, the Macrohive podcast. So you can listen to him uh, every week there as well. Um, and so this has been a fun conversation. Bilal, thank you so much for staying late in London here to join us here on, on SiriusXM. And we appreciate you spending time with us. My pleasure. Thanks a lot, Jeremy. Thanks to our our uh, engineer on the soundboard, Dion Simpkins. Uh, you can listen to me on our Behind the Markets podcast every week. And uh, have a great week, everybody. Thanks for listening to the Behind the Markets podcast. If you want to learn more about WisdomTree, visit wisdomtree.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at Jeremy D. Schwartz. I'd like to thank Patty Hall for producing our live program on SiriusXM channel 132 and our podcast producer, Daniel Bruno. Join us next week for another edition of the show. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.